Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Toby, are we live? We are live. How are you, gents? It's uh, 10.33. We're running a little bit late. Apologies, folks. Uh, 10.33 on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. I've got no idea what time it is UTC or it's like 3.30 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. So I expect lots of Aussies on this one. How are you, gents? We've got a, we've got a special guest today. Ian Castle's joining us uh, as a locum for Bill, who's having a break for a few weeks. Welcome, Ian. Hey, it's great to be here. And I, I think I've, I've tried to bring a 10,000 bots uh, to the program today as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I had a, a, one of my sons poke his head in. He's like, that's not Bill. I said, I know, get out of here. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, what's the, uh, what's the, what, what are we, what are we talking about today? I've got, I've got a little bit on Charles DeVoe, who's, has sadly passed away. And then, um, do you have a, do you have any topics, Ian? Are you, did you, did you prepare? <laughs> um, there's a couple things I could, I could talk about. I've been journaling a little bit on sort of some mental models for microcap investing. And uh, I could share a little bit about that, or just started right, that sounds good. Thinking about it in the last couple of days, so mm, I'm excited for that. What do you bet, you, got, JT? I got a little mini veggies uh, cooked up. It'll be on uh, this baby falconry. carrots. Yeah, they're just baby carrots. Not even really cooked, actually, <laughs> just raw. <laughs> it's uh, the best way to have them. Yeah, it is better. Uh, on a uh, a falconry term that might be of interest for for everybody. So Ooh. we'll get to that. So uh, very sad news today. Uh, we just learned Charles Devoe passed away. He's uh, he was the founder and sort of the the prime mover behind uh, International Value Associates, I think IVA. So I I, I read a little. They, they they announced that they were winding up their funds uh, very beginning of April, and uh, there was a long article written by someone who I think who had been an investor and a supporter of theirs since their inception in 2012. And I read that article, and it was just uh, it was an awful experience because it exactly mirrored my own experience uh, as we've gone through the last sort of 10 years for value, in the sense that they've just struggled to find. Uh, the kind of undervalued positions that they they like, and so they've been extremely disciplined, and they've carried a lot of cash. And as a result, they've really underperformed. And I think that they looked at March last year as being one of those rare opportunities where you could deploy some capital uh, and expect to get a pretty good return. And it, and as everybody you know sort of now knows that they they struggled to get the um, to get the the money deployed because. It was a very sharp bounce and recovery to now new all-time highs, and uh, value sort of has lagged initially out of that. Out of that bounce, has sort of come to life a little bit more over the last six months and even uh, the last month more so. What, what do you What do you guys uh, What do you guys think about that? Did you have any have any have any thoughts? I know when when I saw the headline and I read a little bit about it. 
you know, it's, it's really hard to go along a stretch underperforming. And I know as a stock picker, like I am, and I'm rather concentrated, you know, call it a dozen positions, sometimes less, you know, the more concentrated you are, the more likely you're going through some long durations where it doesn't feel like anything's working. And, you know, that can be a really, really kind of negative spot to be in. And, you know, back maybe 15 years ago, I was in three or four positions. Now I'm closer to a dozen. And some of that has to do with managing some capital as well. But, you know, it really helps just to have something working in the portfolio, even if it's the smallest position in the portfolio. And it's something that I, that I think um, it might not even mean anything to the returns. It might just be a mental lift that it gives, but it's something that I've thought more and more about over the last two, you know, two or three years as well. So do you actively try to put something in there that you think will be non, especially non-correlated with the rest of it? I try, but it's Seriously, going back 20 years, it's funny, like even the portfolio today, I mean, we're rather diversified across different areas and sectors and industries, you know, but it, it still is amazing just how it's something, sometimes it just all goes in sync. You know, it doesn't feel like, it feels like they should be uncorrelated bets, but a lot of times you win and lose in bunches in the, when you're a stock picker for some reason. Um, but it, it definitely has helped my psyche, I believe, kind of just expanding the portfolio up to even a dozen equities. And, and then oftentimes it's that smallest one or two, three positions that you have in the portfolio that end up outperforming, you know, even the largest positions because you've given them the mental space to, that they need to actually grow. You kind of mm. give them enough space to, that they can stumble a little bit. You're not going to overthink it and you're going to give them enough space to get overvalued a little bit. You're not going to sell them, you know? So it, it's just helped me mentally just add in a few positions. One of the challenges is that businesses in an industry often get undervalued at the same time because there's some like in the, there's some industry wide issue, and so then you've you've got this problem where you know that to outperform you need to buy uh, a few of these things because this is the rare opportunity they get undervalued. But then you're also taking on this now industry risk that if you're wrong, and so you, I've back tested this many many times, and basically you get better returns if you're unconstrained you can buy whatever you want, which means you get industry concentration. That's how you get the really good returns, but it's a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. You end up being, you know, you end up being concentrated in for-profit education, which, you know, that's a disaster because they all, they all go to zero. So I guess it comes down to what do you, uh, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to maximize your gains or are you trying to minimize your, uh, your, your potential risk. And I think it, I started out trying to maximize gains and I've, as I've got older, I've gone to like minimizing the, the risk side of the spectrum. How do you guard against that, Toby? I mean, you, you just kind of mentioned it, you know, at certain time periods in the cycle, certain industries are going to be cheaper than others. And so all of a sudden you're 50% in gold miners or, or something, you know, how do you guard against that, you know, from portfolio level? I have an explicit rule. I have an explicit rule where I won't buy um, long. I won't buy more than 20% in an industry and short. I won't do more than 10% in an industry. That makes sense. But that still, that still hurts returns. That still hurts returns in a back test. It's just that it, I figure that that's the sort of the most amount of capital I'm prepared to sort of tear up in any one industry. If it's, if it's real, and this sometimes this evidently this happens now, like the, you get that, the for-profit education, they all screen really cheaply. They all look like really cheap businesses. But uh, that industry was just, uh, you know, burnt to the ground. So you've got to be careful. Well, I, th I think it's also an area that 
Um, we were talking about this a little bit before we came on the program today. It's even when you're looking at your cash position, if you're managing your portfolio, you know, especially if you're more of a value or deep value bent where you're, you're waiting to buy once every 12 years when the market gives you that opportunity and that 60% drawdown, and you're sitting there with 40, 50% cash and you're just waiting and waiting. And just that, just that mental drain of, you know, you're, you're almost, you wake up in a negative mood because you want the world to end so you can buy this stuff cheaper. Yeah, you know, I've been just, there. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> yeah, and then then you 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 start bargaining with the universe that <laughs> if it just crashes and let me get deployed, I'll never hold cash again. <laughs> Give me chase, but not not now. <laughs> That's it. That's exactly right. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's any really good answer to it. But I've done a little bit of testing of that, and you can. Whatever rule you come up with has failed because um, the uh, the market has got over. well, yeah, the market's got more expensive over time. Like whatever whatever sort of fixed rule you applied has always sort of got out of uh, sync because you know basically we're at essentially all time highs now. So whatever a, a rule you would have applied, it sort of forces you into holding. Uh, more cash than you'd otherwise want. There's ne- never really strong signal in there. So you you test the other way where you don't hold any cash at all and you invariably outperform. The only, the opposite side of it though is that you get these bigger drawdowns. But then I, you know, the the immediate thought that comes to mind is that Buffett line about I'd rather a lumpy, I think he says a lumpy 15 18, rather than yeah. a smooth, smooth 12. And so that's like, like you have to make that explicit choice. Am I going to have the, the lumpy 15 or the smooth 12 or the smoother 12? Yeah, but is it like the lumpy 15 and the smooth two? <laughs> well, on the other hand, this is you could get, you know, 6% in your treasury bills with, without oh, breaking a sweat. That's true. There's Seth Klarman out there who like does underperforms for the bulk of the cycle, except he's got a whole lot of cash. So when the market actually really does fall over. He gets he gets most of it invested, and as a result, over, outperforms over the full cycle. Yeah, I feel I feel really bad for Duvall because I, I think I know how he kind of got where he got. Like it's I think it started out with the things that you owned got fully priced in your opinion, and so you decide to sell them, and you couldn't you had a hard time finding things to replace it with that made sense to you at these prices. And that sort of keeps happening and happening until before you know it, you're 40% cash and you're making a macro call now, even though that was not your intention when you started in the least. You were doing bottom-up analysis. And before you know it, you've been in cash for a long time and now you're fully kind of reputationally pot committed to cash. And now you really have to have that big crash before you can kind of get back to where you probably should have been all along maybe um it's just a that's brutal that's rough i mean i and i know because i'm speaking from experience (laughs) i I looked at uh i looked at the before we came on i had a look at the multiple website which has got the shiller pe's at 35.58 today the uh the one year pe i think it was at like 42 something like that just absolutely bonkers and then the the 10 years at 1.58 which you know that's that's up a lot over the last twelve months. But when you look at it in the context of that long run so chart funny. that goes back, oh, you know, there's there's nothing to suggest that 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 experience is over either. It could clearly still be in that sort of downtrend that 
you know, maybe it looks like Europe, maybe it goes into a negative territory. That macro stuff is just, you give yourself the, uh, the worst headache trying to solve that problem. And I don't know how to solve it. I try not to think about it. That's just, I'm a little bit, I, I don't spend too much time thinking about the macro. The way I think about it is on the micro level, just thinking about the businesses I own and can they weather a storm? You know, they, can they survive a, a COVID timeframe like last February, March and throughout the year, you know, and it's, that's the only thing I can do. That's the only thing I have control over. Um, just trying to be, you know, and obviously I invest a little bit differently than, than you guys, but you know, just trying to find those unique growing businesses that obviously are small because I'm a micro cap investor, but that can weather that storm. You know, a lot of my filters that I use, you know, they're there to kind of protect the downside as much as, as realize the upside. And so how do you think about valuation for those companies? Is, is where, where does valuation come into it for you and, and sort of what stage of the process? It, you know, I kind of, I look at everything kind of through a three-year lens and, and this is, this has kind of evolved over time too. It's funny when you think about the maturation of an investor, you know, I think we've all kind of gone through similar maturations where, you know, when you first get into investing, you're just looking at fundamentals and financials because that's the only knowledge base that you have because you went through an accounting class or went to school, that type of thing, you know? And so you're overly emphasizing the financials almost of a company because that's all you know. And then over time, you kind of start looking at different industries or different kind of sectors. And then all of a sudden, oh, look, you know, it's, I love this oil and gas sector. I just want to focus on this. And all of a sudden you're, you become kind of an expert in that area. And then all of a sudden- And then you're out of oh, business. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it depends where you're at in that and what cycle. You know, th- then you're like, okay, well now I care about management. I didn't care about it before, but this is a new area. Now I'm going to dive into qualitative a- attributes of investing, start looking at leadership. I did that with Intelligent Fanatics and you overemphasize that area. And then you go to growth. Well, you know, let's just look at things that can grow 40% a year because growth can cure a lot of ills. You know, if they overspend, who cares? They can grow, you know, whatever the case may be. And so kind of you're, you're always kind of going away from the mean then coming back to reality. And I think all of a sudden, you know, 20, 30 years later, you realize, you know, all of those pieces are necessary for the investing puzzle, whether it's, you know, financials, growth, you know, valuation, quality, you know, the management part of it. Um, and that life's all about that journey, especially through investing. And that's kind of where I've been at too. I mean, even when I wrote two books on intelligent fanatics, I was probably overemphasizing the intelligent fanatic of the organization. I mean, the one key takeaway from the intelligent fanatics work I did was actually to pay less attention to the person at the top and pay more attention to the people they have around them. Mm. You know, it's so that's um, interesting. And what, why, 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 why that? Why, why is that the key takeaway? Well, because a lot of micro caps, they're just hustles. You know, they're one or two man or woman operations that, you know, they can, it's, and Brent B. Short talks about this as well, where, you know, they can take a company from zero to 20 million in revenue. And then they're, they become their own ceiling because they keep on having to do everything, you know? And so I'm interested in finding the ones that can go from 20 million to, you know, 100, yeah. 200 million. And for that, you have to put great people in place, put processes in place, put feedback loops in place that will allow you to spin that flywheel and get get the business humming. And so, you know, even right. a lot of the successes in micro cap, especially in nano cap, a lot of them are just really glorified hustles. You know, there's a lot of big moves of 10 million micro cap companies going to 50 million and that's a five X, but that was just a business that went from 5 million in revenue to 15 million in revenue and earned four times more, you know, and then that's all it ever is, you know? And so anyway, 
So it's like the difference between, sorry. I was going to say our our processes are kind of like uh, the blind man who's feeling the elephant, right? And we over-index to kind of whatever part of the elephant we've been touching recently. (laughs) Recency bias. Yeah. Yeah, it's the difference between an entrepreneur or someone's just had that singular kind of insight to like building a business that is, and that's that's quite a challenge, I guess, because there's there's lots of guys out there who'll come in and they'll pilot your business once it gets to a certain scale, like the mid cap and above, and they're like professional CEOs who know how to take something that's stable and then grow it stably. And there's plenty of guys who are entrepreneurs who can get from zero to whatever twenty million, say, but it's that putting all of the systems in place to get from 20 to mid cap or 20 to sort of solid small cap. That is the, there wouldn't be a lot of people around who've got that skill set, I guess, unless they've done it themselves. And then why would they want to do it for somebody else? Yeah. So sort of the, the thing I like to see is, well, the thing I really like to see is the intelligent fanatic, somebody that had previous success, somebody that built up a business and sold it for 20, 50, a hundred million. And now they're just using their personal net worth to kind of backstop this vision of a new company. They're bringing the, the band back together again, you know, and they know what worked. They knew what didn't work. Um, I love finding those. And, you know, I usually stumble upon maybe one a year of, of something like that. And it benefits it from the capital market side too, because this is a person with a personal net worth where if the company needs another 3 million. He's writing the check or, or she, you know, and so it's uh, it cures a lot of bills when you find those kind of qualitative measures in a, in a, in a leader, you know, in one of these small companies. When you're, so you said earlier at the beginning, you're going to talk a little bit about journaling uh, and some ideas that you've had. Just what, what, what function does, how do you, how do you keep your journal? What do you, what do you do for journaling? Normally I just get up and just throw up on a page, you know, sometimes there's no rhyme, <laughs> rhyme or reason to it. Lately I'm doing it. Doing an interview in another week um, with Ro Hith, who has actually worked with me on Intelligent Fanatics. He's now doing some work for Manual of Ideas, and he asked me to kind of think about mental models for microcap investing. And it's and it's an area that I've kind of written on and journaled about, you know, sort of haphazardly over the years. But I wanted to put a little bit more construct to it, and so I've been thinking more about that and kind of the two main. I don't even know if they're mental models. It's not like you hear Charlie Munger thinking about them or using them. But I mean, there, it's just kind of two themes of, I, I think the most powerful thing in microcap is when you can find a tailwind combined with scarcity. You know, so when you find an industry or consumer trend or technolo- technological tailwind, and, you know, Josh Wolf would call this kind of a directional arrow of progress. You know, I think we've probably heard some presentations he's done. When you can find something like that, and then when there's only one or two or three publicly ways, public ways to play that directional trend, you know, so you're kind of, you know, a million people want to buy something, but there's only three pieces of artwork out there, you know, it just drives price, you know, and that's the power of kind of scarcity. Um, this is your NFT portfolio. I was, I was, yeah, what I was no, say. It, it is, but it's, <laughs> okay. it's, it seems like it's oversimplified a little bit, but those are the things that I, generally try to find, you know, there's things where there's a tailwind, you know, it's just easier to, to row with the tide, as they say, and then also to, to pick the areas where, you know, the institutions are going to come after this tailwind at some point, and there's only going to be two or three ways for them to participate in it, and I want to own it before them. 
That you sounds know, like uh, that sounds like a pretty good pitch for Bitcoin. Yeah, well, it's 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 a little bit of the same. I'm trying to think of a good example I could give you guys. Um, yeah, maybe what about a good, a good example? historical example. A good example, I think. When did Facebook go public? 2013. 2012, something around there, right? 2012. So it was, it was probably like 2010 then. Um, you know, so social networks were becoming the rage. Facebook wasn't public yet. And there was this small website called kpasa.com, which was the only publicly traded social network that existed. And it was a small 20, 30 billion market cap, micro cap company. And it was a, you know, a Latino social network. And, you know, I stumbled upon it. <laughs> I, I, uh, I met, I didn't, I met with management when they went to New York and, uh, I was like, okay, this is an area that I think is going to get hot. It's the only one that's public. Eventually, there's going to be more that are going to come public. But I think that institutions are just going to buy this thing up because their investors will demand exposure to this ecosystem, whether it's just this one or two or three other ones, this thing's going to go higher. And sure enough, over the next 12 months, it went from like a dollar to 12, you know, Oof. just in the back of just institutional inflows needing exposure to this, you know, and eventually Facebook went public in 2012 or whatever, a year or two later. And then this company actually morphed and merged and became Meet Me. And I think Meet Me just got acquired for, for 500 million last year. So it, it ended up evolving into something else, still a social network, a dating app more or less. But you know, that's kind of a, a crude example and that's not representative of a great business either, but kind of just to give you an <laughs> example of, you know, sort of that directional tailwind and then there's only one or two ways to play that. But I think you can find you can find things like that in microcap, you know, in certain areas of the industry where you know it's gonna be a place that's gonna garner a lot of attention. You know, and so part of my, you know, I'm not I don't characterize myself as a momentum investor, but you know, I want to find things that are undervalued that will get overvalued. You know, and so that's kind of the metric that I look for, things like that. I just uh, stumbled onto MySpace Tom's, my, my old, my, my original friend, MySpace Tom. I found this Instagram feed. It's insane. The guy's just been on holiday, been on vacation for, since he sold it. But that's, that, that was a great deal. He, he punched out of that for $700 million to News Corp. And News Corp sold $2 billion of advertising that Google paid them $2 billion to have exclusive advertising on it. So it worked out well for everybody there as far as I can see. But MySpace Tom gets a, gets ripped every now and again because, uh, you know, he's not Zuck. But then I look at his life and I think, I don't think that MySpace Tom wants to be Zuck. I think he's, I think he's, he's living his best life. He's not going to Congress and... <laughs> He's just, he's, he, he's got like a, I think he's got a drone and he's got an interest in photography. So his, his Instagram feed just looks like a professional travel photographer's wet dream. Basically, it's, it's incredible. He goes everywhere. Should we, uh, should we? Just a, one, one last one. I was like just thinking about it. You know, probably another one that I think is, works really well is obviously something like Inversion, which Munger talks about. But I know, you know, and I, tweet about this probably you know three or four times a year just about you know if you want to hold a multi-bagger you have to hold a multi-bagger you know and so if you want to find great companies early and experience that gain and actually realize that gain you know you're gonna to have to hold these things and that means you're gonna to have to go through the volatility it takes to endure that and you're gonna have 30 40 50 percent drawdowns um you know case in point you know the largest position in my portfolio Right now, it's down 40% since the end of the year to now, and that hurts, you know, but the business hasn't changed. You know, it's just that it's, you know, come off a little bit, 
you know, fundamentals backfilling into the stock price. And that's just a big part of these things. But, you know, I find if you want to hold multi-baggers, there's like two ways to do it. You either Chris Mayer coffee can them, you know, either make them so small that you're not going to think about them almost, or the opposite side of that, which is make them a concentrated bet that you're going to know them better than most. And you're really going to have your pulse in that company where, you know, you're, you can hold through that volatility because you know that business almost on an intimate level. Um, there's almost like two ways where you can do that. Do you trim them? It's interesting. They're at opposite ends of the spectrum too, right? Like buy it and then just completely forget about it. Like, you know, lose the account login <laughs> or like know it so well that you, that you mentally can handle the, the rough ride that you're about to receive. Yeah. I don't think there's any right or wrong. Either one of those is wrong either. You know, I've thought before about, you know, I stumble upon ideas all the time that, um, you know, and again, you know, this micro cap investing the way I do it, it's not batting average. I'm not trying to get be 10 out of 10, you know, it's still six out of 10. Um, and I'm not going to be right all the time on the things I think I know. And a lot of the ones that I maybe passed on end up being big winners. So, you know, what is a coffee canned kind of 40 company micro cap? All right. I'm going to equal weight two and a half percent across all of these things. How does that do over time? You know, obviously that looks more of a, like a venture bucket, uh, but you know, I don't think there's any right or wrong answer to it. It's more fits your personality. I think. I have done a little bit of testing in that sort of, in that space, just cause I'm interested in what happens if I just buy, you know, buy the list of the best and, you know, on a very, not, not, a, not a particularly strict valuation basis. Like I'm just saying they need free cash flow better than the existing 10 year. And then there's some, you know, you assume some growth. And I've found that the portfolio is like in any given year, you're buying 40 or 50 companies because that I think there's like two or 300 worthwhile ones globally. You end up buying 40 or 50 in any given year. And then a portion of them go to zero. And it's very, very hard to detect at the outset, I think, to eyeball them and work out which one's going to be a zero and which one. And then, you know, some of them end up going up quite a few times. So that's, you, you do become each each little portfolio that you form in any given year, um, wind it forward twenty years, and it becomes it becomes concentrated, just unavoidable. You're going to have positions in there that go up 10, 20, 60 times in some instances, and they become material to the portfolio. And then you have lots that go to zero or don't go anywhere. So the portfolio sort of becomes this. It becomes a concentrated, high-quality portfolio over time. It's just you're really riding on a handful of, by that stage, pretty overvalued names. So, like, you won't end up owning Netflix and you've got a big chunk of Netflix. Like, I don't know what I'd be doing with that. If I was concentrated, it'd be very nervous-making. Not sleeping at night. Not sleeping, yeah. So, but it, even, even not being concentrated, it still ends up being, like, 8% of the portfolio, you know. I was thinking about what if there was sort of, like, a – Ender's game, bait like layer between you and what was actually happening in the portfolio. So you're like picking names and you're you're overweighting this concentration. But what actually is getting done after that is like, oh, it's even position sizing it. It's uh, you know, it's holding for longer than you were going to. It's like it's doing all the things that you kind of think you should be doing, but you are really too hard to execute because they're just too mentally painful. <laughs> I don't mind that as an approach. I think you kind of get there with the quanti kind of, yeah. uh, you know, doing it explicitly from the outset. I just, but I you just, have to watch what's happening on a on a day to day basis, so that can be painful, right? Yeah, I, I think that's probably solution the solution, right? Just to just to forget about it. once you've formed a portfolio, 
now you just that's that's the 2021 portfolio and you're not yeah. allowed to look at individual names in it it's just going to trade as a as a monolith and then next year you're going to form the 2022 portfolio and you're not allowed to look or you, you you're just going to torture yourself if you look well, it's, almost, it's almost like the vc vintage you're going to have vintages almost. yeah yeah that's exactly what it is who who had the idea of uh they would trim their smaller positions. Do you remember that? Like if it got if it fell below some portion of the portfolio, one percent or two percent, I forget what the exact number was, but then they just sell out. Do you remember who that was, JT? Yeah, the first person I heard talk about that was actually uh, Mark Simpson. Mark Simpson, yeah. Yeah. In his book saying like once it falls below a certain level, like I just it's just a distraction for me at that point. I yeah. need to cut cut bait and find something else. I think that's a good approach because if it if it if it's a good company and it gets cheap again, you'll buy it again with a full size holding. I don't I don't know what the level is. I don't know what the materiality is, but one percent suggests you know if you got fifty stocks and it falls to one percent, it's basically halved. Yeah, math checks I, out. I like the <laughs> I like that thought process though, Toby. Like about I think. I think the first time I ever, you said it so eloquently, but Brian Ferraldi on Twitter, you know, he mentioned, he had a tweet about that. You know, if you naturally just let your winners run, they become more concentrated and your portfolio becomes more concentrated in your winners, you know, and that should be sort of your goal. You know, that's kind of what you described. The problem is, and this is the only thing that gives me pause. I look at it now and we're close to the, you know, where the market is, the market is high. Everything's performed for a long period of time, 12 years of performance. What does that portfolio look like if you go through a drawdown? Do, do I, would I regret, you know, gee, you had Netflix there and uh, you had, you know, some huge weighting in the portfolio in it and you knew it was overvalued. Why, why didn't you sell it at that point? Yeah, it gets really difficult. I've, I've had the same thought just with kind of putting that to work even in microcap. You know, just kind of gets back to what I was saying about nano caps. A lot of them that are even hustles can 5X and are still a hustle. Same thing, you know, a lot of the really big biker cap winners, you know, they went up 10X, but that's all they went up. And then they went down 50% and they stayed there, you know. And so you don't want to just coffee can these things. And especially in the smaller realm of micro cap, it's like, it's usually it's more obvious when something stops working, unlike a kind of a large cap, you know, from a business level. You know, and so it's mm. stupid just to keep holding things you know aren't working. Have you had anything that's like graduated to mid cap and then made it into large? Not not necessarily holding it all the way through, but something that you you were looking at when you started out twenty years ago, and now it's now it's a big company. It's a good question. Um, it's a little company not, called Amazon. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, you know, the Amazon only got down to like two hundred fifty million market cap. I think kind of at the trough, and that's what nobody else. Uh, Bill Miller was the only one buying it, but yeah, isn't your, your cutoffs like? What's your cutoff? Is it three hundred, or is that that's a that's a that's the uh, inflation adjusted number? That that means it was like a hundred back then, or something. Yeah, it probably was. You know, it, it, I mean, microcaps considered sub three hundred million. It depends if it's in vogue or not. And somebody wants to make it five hundred million or less. You know, and they call themselves microcap. Yeah, but yeah. it really depends. That's a good trick. I just got to write that one down. Hold on. Yeah, but, under a billion. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> But it's funny, like you go around the world based on kind of exchange rates. It's um, you know, a friend of mine, Sanjay Bakshi, who manages a fund over in India. It's like he's a mid-cap investor, and his average market cap six hundred million USD. You know, and so it just should like, be small cap business. here. Yeah, it's just the business are just smaller, you know, because of the where they're at, probably their economic cycle and just the maturation of their economy. I think that's true globally. 
I think Australian businesses tend to be smaller. I, I, you know, the US businesses are un, uh, kind of uh, unusual that they get so big, like a trillion dollars. I still am struggling a little bit to wrap my head around that one. And there's a few now, like stuff like that's a new thing. It, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, it, it's it's annoying to me as a microcap investor when, and it's why the, the the market's probably as high as it is when you look at, I don't know, seven of the top 10 largest companies in the world are technology companies. Oh, and they're all, all growing. They're still growing 20 to 40% a year. They're the largest companies in the world growing 20 to 40% a year with 30% EBITDA margins. It's like, okay, you know, with 0% interest rates. Yeah, I can see why the, with the market cap, you know, weighted indices pushing them higher. Yeah, I could see how that works, you know. I'm surprised the indexes look as stretched as they are because they make up such a big part of the index and they're they're all free cash flow positive, growing really quickly, really good businesses. And and it still means there's some, the rest of the index is kind of not really pulling its weight. Fundamentally speaking, you mean? Fundamentally speaking, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what are all these other laggards doing? If <laughs> trying to appeal to deep value investors or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I guess so. That's, that's, that's not a good place to be. Melting ice cubes. <laughs> do, do you want to do your, uh, your baby carrots? Sure, yeah. If, uh, Ian, did you have any other mental models you wanted to no, drop uh, on us? That's enough, yeah. Okay, I'll save some for next week. Yeah. <laughs> save some for the, uh, for, the, for the podcast we're supposed to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I yeah, just exactly. talk about it. <laughs> yeah, just show up there. I've got nothing. Yeah, just listen to this. <laughs> All right, so uh, I came across, one of my friends told me about this idea that's actually from Falconry. And it, it came, um, originally, I think he learned about it from Yvonne Chenard, who was the founder and driving force behind Patagonia, right? And I don't know if you guys know much about him, if you've read his uh, book, Let My People Go Surfing, um, just a terrific book, but it's, and, and just like the culture that he built is so unique. Uh, and just, I'm, I'm very, um, I don't want to say envious, but I'm like, I think they've, he really did a lot of things right on a long-term sustainable business standpoint. But, um, you know, if you know about him, like, you know, that he was like a hardcore actual like adventurer kind of guy. Like it wasn't just like, oh, I'm a CEO, you know, button down, you know, wear suits to work. Like, no, this guy's like up climbing in the Pyrenees and um, you know, just doing all this crazy stuff. And like he, he walked the walk, you know, it wasn't just like BS. Um, anyway, so one of the things that he talks about in this in his book is about in falconry, they have this term called Yarik, Y-A-R-A-K. And be careful with your Google searches there because it is slang for something you probably don't want to come across. Um, but um, it in in this context, the, the context that we want to use, uh, Yarik is the state that a bird gets in when it's been, hasn't been fed in a couple of days. So, a, you know, if you have a, a, a falcon and it and it's just recently eaten like you can't get it to do anything right it it is it just will not it won't hunt it'll just it doesn't want to fly it's it's not doing anything but if it hasn't eaten in a couple days it gets into this state where it becomes hyper alert and it's like you can see it in the bird's eyes like like do a google search of you know falcon yarick together and like look at this bird and like you look at him you're like holy shit, this bird would tear me apart if it got the chance, right? It, it just has that 
that eye of the tiger kind of look. And it's, um, and so the, the, the important thing is that the bird is hungry, but not to the point of being weakened, right? It's, it's ready to hunt and it's in its, its optimal state. And it, to me, it, it actually makes a lot of sense that when the chips are down and you're hungry, evolution would have been a, a forcing function would say like, okay, well you have to be at your best right now, like to make it through to the next round, right? Like we can't afford to get so hungry that we become weakened and we can't then pr provide for ourselves. So the, this acuity that happens to me makes a ton of sense from an evolutionary selection um, bias kind of uh, process. So um, what is that? What can we do with that? Like, what does that mean? Well, especially in a small business context, a company that is Yarrick, like they're hungry, they're conserving resources, um, has a, a very serious advantage. And one of the ways of putting your small business into Yarrick is inverting the popular revenue minus expenses equals profits. So that's what we all learn in business school, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's almost a, it's a cliche at this point. The correct formula there is revenue minus profits equals expenses. So this is almost like pay yourself first as a business, like carve out your profit ahead of time and then use your expenses that you have available to delight your customer in the way that you best can. You want that forcing function that will unlock the creativity that will allow you to uh, truly provide a great experience, but also guarantee that you're you're staying profitable and you're keeping your business in Yarrick. We can apply the same thing to your personal finances. Automatically saving a certain amount of your income will put your your family, your yourself, your team in Yarrick. And it's it's not about um, you know like living an austere life necessarily. It's actually about forcing you to examine the expenses that you do have and like run them through the the rubric of is this making me happy? Is this doing what I like I want it to be doing for me? And if not, then it needs to go. And you won't do that unless you have that forcing function. Um, and the other part that's really nice about it as someone who's been doing it for a long time is that the expenses that you do spend, then you can do guilt-free because you know that you're taking care of the future already by saving ahead of time, uh, which is a, that's a, that's a nice place to be. Cause I know for me, at least like I, I kind of feel guilty spending money often. Um, and there's like a little part of me that likes to deny myself. So, um, you know, there's Buffett has identified this when he says that, um, a fat wallet is the enemy of superior investment results. Uh, and then if we go back even a little further, uh, Cervantes said that, that hunger is the best sauce, right? <laughs> like nothing tastes better than, than when you're really hungry. So Anyway, it's a little falconry term that is uh, kind of fun and um, I think actually has some really useful useful life uh, lessons. It's a little bit like the uh, the capital returns book where I, I, that's something I've written about in Deep Value as well where I, I said that the what you want is companies that are good at husbanding capital through good times and having it there for the bad times because that's when they need it to which, which is funny given our conversation earlier about carrying cash. But I do think that it, yeah. like this is why it's so, so hard, right? That you, you kind of want companies to be holding a little bit of cash or at least have some firepower in some respect. So when they go through a bad time, they're able to sort of capitalize on it. But then the, quid, the, the, the other side of that, I guess, is that you underperform a little bit. 
through the, through the rest of the cycle. It's a tough business. Well, there's no, uh, like you, you can't optimize for both, you know, efficiency in the short term and resiliency in the long term. You have to choose one or the other. Right. When I think that another kind of segue with that, it's just how, you know, frugality a lot of times drives innovation, you know, from a company level as well. When you're restrained, I mean, Bezos talks about that and a bunch of people talk about that. Why do you think that is? Well, you're forced to use, you know, you're forced to be innovative and just use the resources that you have, you know, and grind and, and get, get a solution. A lot of times the solution you find is probably the most efficient one anyway, when you're forced to have limited resources to some regards, but do you think that the abundance of venture capital for startup companies, like I think that there's this um, there's this expectation for many young founders that they're just going to go and raise VC, and therefore you don't need to do anything to kind of get get you beyond. You don't need to, you know, any Ball other ping sort pong of tables and yeah, <laughs> straight to the ping pong tables, straight to the nice office. Do you think that that makes them less resilient if they start off, you know? well-funded? I, uh, I mean, I certainly can see that argument that, you know, if you never learn any fiscal discipline, um, it it's going to be difficult when it does get forced on you at some point, uh, whether the market forces it on you through competition or whether uh, outside investor forces it on you because they think that you're pissing the money away. Um, but at the same time, like what is an expense that is... Uh, necessary to delighting the customer and if you you know the ping, ping pong, pong table. table i say that jokingly <laughs> but like table. if the ping pong table builds a culture such that your team is super tight and really works well together and is really happy to come to work every day and maybe they put in an extra couple hours well shit that ping pong table is a pretty good investment then so yeah. it's not always just clear cut you know what is uh what's a a strategically smart expense and what is a, a wasteful expense. I also think that the only kind of VC backed companies we hear about in the headlines are the ones where just tons of cash are thrown at them. There's plenty of other ones that are successful that, that do well, that, um, you know, are frugal as well. I, there's a, he showed up on my Twitter feed. His name's Honam, H O N A M. If you're, anybody's listening to this, go search him out. Really smart guy. So he's a co-founder of Altos Ventures. And it's about a 10 billion plus venture capital firm he co-founded in 1996. And they go about venture capital in a completely different way than the norm. You know, they actually go and, and they take more concentrated portfolios than normal in venture capital. And they, they look to really help the businesses kind of grow in a pragmatic, capital-efficient type manner. Like they want to get to profitability. And, you know, they think it's dangerous to, to crank up the burn rate, you know, because they think that destroys the culture, you know, of the company when they do that. And they've had, they've been wildly successful. I just had, <laughs> I reached out to him through Twitter. So he showed up on my Twitter feed. And then, you know, I said, hey, do you have 15 minutes to talk? I want to bend your ear. And we ended up spending two hours on the phone together. He's just fascinating because he's kind of like Brent B. Shore meets VC, you know, and, and he's been immensely successful in that model. I think they've had 26 companies they've funded that have returned more than the funds that they're in and like 20 of that returned three X of the, the fund, you know, and they, they just uh, take a more pragmatic approach to, to venture 
capital, you know, and they average up into positions over time. Like he tells a story of, I think, was it Roblox that just went public? It's a yeah. $40, $50 billion technology company. I think they were, they were the first one and a half million into that company. And they had to convince, oh, wow. they had to convince the founder and his dad to like take the money. Like they're like, we don't want, we don't even need this, but you know, they had to convince them, you know? And uh, so anyway, he fascinating person. You should interview him, Toby, on, on your podcast, but uh, he just thinks through a different lens. And so I think there's a lot of other companies that are kind of like that backed by people that like Honam, who just, um, you know, do take a pragmatic profitability frugality type approach. So even to VC. Is that your model? Do you, do you think of yourself as sort of listed VC or, or where, where do you, where, like, what's your, how, how do you think about the problem? I reached out to him because I was curious how the other thing he's done very well is hold for the right tail. Like he's, I think he's still holding a couple companies for 20 plus years and not because he's stuck in them, but because they're winners. Mm. And he doesn't believe in, you know, taking companies public too soon either, because he believes if a company's profitable and growing, he'll find liquidity. There's always going to be a buyer, even as a private company for a piece of the company. So, uh, so the, again, funds, he, the funds don't expire then? Isn't well, they, they still, they're, they're, they're longer duration funds. And he actually sets up other funds to buy out other interests and SPVs to do some secret. He's, it, it's really smart how he does it. So I was interested in how he handles just capturing as much of that right tail as possible. Um, and so that was the basis of the conversation and how exactly he did that. And he just kind of went into a little bit of detail into that. But, and, but I do think it's, there's a lot of similarities to his approach to investing and what I try to do in the public markets to answer your question, Toby. Yeah. It's, what, what, in this little project that I've been doing where I t- take these companies from uh, uh, 20 years ago and then just never sell them, it's one of the things that, that I have observed that uh, they, they do go through these very long periods of being often they can be overvalued and they just don't do anything for you know years, three or five years, but then ultimately they sort of come back to life. And I, I don't know, they, they don't reappear in the screen in that period where they're under, where they're kind of undervalued and not really working. I think that there's something to that very, very long holding period. You do, you, in, you introduce like Jake and I've talked about it in the past is like introducing the right tail. It's the way it's a way for value guys to get a right tail into their, portfolio because you know you're no longer holding these things for value reasons they are when you buy them you you're buying them because there's they've had some misstep or they're just not quite appropriately valued but then there's enough of them that become donuts over a period of time that you know the, the monte carlo approach to it is does make sense there's a reason why these things are undervalued because they do have some issues and i always give the example of microsoft in like 2011 or 12 you know one year of revenue going backwards had Steve Barmer at the helm about to hand over to Satya Nadella, who nobody really knew about. And uh, the, the world was in a little bit more flux. And now Microsoft's become a gigantic ripper, but you would have sold way too early if you were, you know, watching yeah, you the value. Almost like a left tail buyer and a right tail holder. Right. <laughs> Toby, what did you interviewed? William Green recently, and I think everybody yeah. on the planet has his book in front of them. I know I do too. I'm only a couple chapters in, but what were, what was maybe the, I don't know if you read the whole thing yet, but maybe what were one or two things that you thought were most interesting out of the book or your conversation with him? Yeah, I love the fact that um, a lot of these guys have got probabilistic data-driven approaches to you know the market, and then they apply those same rules 
in their own personal life. And I'll bet if you talk to anybody, um, I mean, I'm sure all three of us do that. I know JT does it. I was going to talk to him about Yarek for, for human beings. For Because uh, are you still an intermittent faster, JT? you still do that? Yeah, that's my... Um, Yarek applies to the human biology as well. And definitely feel better when I'm when I have periods where I'm yeah and in fact like I um if I have something really important like mentally that I want to optimize for I want to go into it in a in a pretty fasted state how long is a is a fasted state for you 18 hours or longer than that yeah typical like run rate day is 18 but um for that if it's something depends on what time it is um and sort of if I want to eat or not, but, um, yeah, I mean, it could be a whole day pretty easily if I wanted and I'll feel pretty damn sharp and good going into it. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's interesting to see how, uh, folks take the insights that they get from the markets, which are basically just, you know, it's just human psychology or human, uh, interaction, sociability, and then apply that in their personal life. Cause there's, there's a lot of, I think William Green writes about this a little bit, that there are a lot of guys who, who have the low EQ and that seems to help them in, a, in an investing context because they're, they're happy to be apart from the herd. But then I know a lot of guys who've got very high self-awareness who also seem to do quite well in the markets. And I think by, you know, the, the self-awareness helps them when they're underperforming or something like that or they're, they're able to understand the motivations or the movements for, uh, and I, I think that, you know, someone like Bill Miller's story is interesting. I don't know if, um, I was sort of, wasn't quite as aware of the story as, um, as I am now that I've chatted to William about it, but I love that, you know, he had that very long period of time, 15 years or something where he beat the market and he outperformed. And then he had, uh, some years in the wilderness where he didn't do very well, changed firms, um, you know, had the, big position in Kodak that he bought all the way down. It's kind of must've been psychologically quite difficult. And then to see him sort of turn that around and the way that he, you know, he's six, he's very, very successful now and he's, but he's still got that same kind of, um, you know, I think he's quite got a stoic sort of approach to the market where it doesn't really bother him anymore. I found that really, um, really compelling i think that that's that's an important thing like as as william was talking i was like this is all the sort of stuff that i want to put in my new book or this is stuff that i've been researching for the book and it's interesting to hear it in in the context of many other investors because i'm doing it explicitly in the context of of buffett because i think that he definitely possessed some of these ideas so i think yeah there's there's a lot to the there's a lot to the uh having some sort of philosophy outside of um outside of the markets that seems to be helpful. Have you read the book? I, I read the first two chapters. So I got through Monish and Templeton. And it, and it was interesting. <laughs> so you know, I was reading about, about Monish and I remember it brought up a memory and there was a part in the book. Um, I should have it here. I'm going to bore everybody watching me page through a book, but. There was a part in the book where he, where uh, Monish was talking, about, where, where he was describing Monish and how, like, he's very guarded with his time, you know, and, yeah. and he, he and you know he'll meet with somebody once and then he'll evaluate the person if they were worthwhile or they were additive to his life or not, and if they aren't, he has no problem just not 
seeing them again. <laughs> you know, that type of thing. And he believes in the, you know, he's a clone of Buffett, so he believes in having a clear schedule, not having anything, any appointments and things like that. And I remember, so a, a friend of mine, well-known investor, um, so the summit that Microcap Club puts on, it's usually in September in Chicago every year. And it almost always coincides with Monish's annual meeting he has for his fund. And are they on the West Coast? Where does he where does he host that? He usually has it in he, Chicago. Okay. He has two. One in Irvine yeah. and one in Chicago. One in Chicago. Okay. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, if our event's gonna be there, maybe I could just swing by and, you know, listen to it or whatever. And so but I, I'd never talked to Monish before. And so I had a friend of mine who I knew knew him. Uh, email him, do an email introduction for me. And he made the email introduction. And then uh, <laughs> I should pull up the email. I forget exactly what it said, but he emailed me back something like, I try to keep a clear schedule. If there's something worthwhile to talk about, let me know. And that was like that. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> and I, I, it kind of sat me back. I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, well, you know, I don't have anything. <laughs> yeah. My first inclination was, well, I'm sorry to waste your time, pal, you know, just, but I just said, after a while, I kind of sat back and reflected on that, about how guarded he was with his time. And I was like, yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, in some ways that I could see, and he doesn't, he realizes that probably rubs people the wrong way, but it's just how he kind of probably has walls up around his life and his time. So he can focus on the things he want to focus on. But anyway. Paul Graham has this great article where he talks about, I think it's the maker calendar versus the, maybe the manager calendar. And he says that because it takes you know, deep work like writing or something like that takes an ex- it takes a long time to get yourself into the state where you can do it. So you need to, you know, if you're writing, you need to read what you've written beforehand to get yourself into the state that you know what you're talking about. And if you're interrupted through that process, it's hard to get any kind of flow on. So Paul Graham recommended that make a calendar should be like the morning is empty or the afternoon is empty. Like you need an entire block where you don't schedule calls. And I, I try to do that too, because I get, I get lots of people who want, I just need 15 minutes of time, but the 15 minutes breaks up. I make a block for me. And so it's 15 minutes is as bad as an hour. So I try to concentrate all the calls that I have to do in the same time that I've got other stuff where I'm being interrupted. I found that to be a useful thing, but there's a lot of people who want 15 minutes and it's just hard to give 15 to, to every single person. Two hours. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the, the, then there's that, there's, the, there's the, that's the thing that you miss out on, right? That's a serendipitous meeting of someone who's, who's, um, you know, interesting and has, can help. I think it's, a, I think it's a commonality probably in a lot of people. I know um, a friend of mine, Yen Liao uh, of Aravat, he's the same way. Like he doesn't schedule any meetings before noon. Uh, and I'm the same way too. Like I, I'm a more of a morning person. So that's my creativity phase. That's when you work. Yeah. yeah. You know, a little bit before the kids get up. So call it 5 a.m. to to 7 a.m., 8 a.m., you know, crank a couple cups of coffee and, you know, I start writing, you know, journaling, thinking, that type of thing. And I, now that I have two young kids that, you know, my window is about an hour. Yeah. I write, my writing suffered. Yeah. There's no, not nearly as much journaling anymore. Let's put it that way. But, uh, but I can certainly see why, you know, kind of siloing those parts of the day are important. And for me too, like I get, like even for, for this uh, podcast, you know, I, same as Jake, like I haven't eaten today and, you know, it's one o'clock Eastern over here just because I feel like I'm more alert, you know, when I, when I do something like this. So I, I definitely, I see that Yarrick in your eyes, Ian. That's right. I'm ready, ready to attack. <laughs> ready to are, you, are you an intermittent faster? I'm not, but I do enjoy 
denied myself of things from time to time, you know, like there's usually a couple of months a year where I just won't drink alcohol just to not drink alcohol. You know, I, I don't go over and above, you know, I don't go extreme with it, but from time to time, I, I like to get rid of things just to show myself that I can. Yeah. Weird like that. You always want to do that in February because it is the shortest month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I did it. 28 la- days. Last year, I did the non-drinking thing over, it was December. So over holidays, it was December and January. And I wanted to test myself because it was over the holidays and my birthday and New Year's Eve. And I was just- Real like, denial. It was yeah. tough. Yeah. Did it work? I made it. I made it. Did, did, you, yeah. did, you, did you lose weight? Did you notice we lose weight or anything like that? A little bit. Uh, I definitely felt better. Yeah. A lot better. You know, it's, it's amazing just how, yeah, just more alert I am, you know, and, and you're like, well, why do you go back to drinking? Well, you know, I still like to enjoy having a beer every now and then. But yeah. <laughs> it is what it is. Um, we're sort of coming up on time, Amigas. Uh, throw a question in. We'll see if we can do a question. We, we might be just about out of time. It's been fun having you here, Ian. You're, you're joining us one next week as well. Yep, I'll be back. I'm getting just, my my second vaccine shot on Sunday, so I should be so back. Might You'll be, be back. ready to go. <laughs> I'll yeah. Be, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I might be a little more lethargic, so I'll just be sitting here in a stupor. But <laughs> we're looking forward right. to it. That, that that'll be really fun. Look forward to seeing you again. I mean, as that's time, so uh, we'll we'll catch everybody next week. I'm going to try to uh, to to stop broadcasting. Here we go. Let me see if I can do this. Shake it up, stop when the clock gets 13. Sing one, one, two.